Welcome to our last Tuesday of the month book discussion. Just a couple of librarians talking about books we think others might enjoy. June's read is Carrie, a memoir of survival on stolen land by Tony Jensen. Spoiler alert, we usually end up discussing endings and key plot points. I'm Amy and joining me today is Kelly, public services librarian at North Liberty Library. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Amy. So for those folks who may not have gotten to the ending yet, or maybe you're just joining us because you like to hear our lovely voices, this memoir is a collection of essays that connect the individual to the broader communities and cultures surrounding the author. She really delves into a lot of issues surrounding domestic violence, racism, gun control, and feminism throughout the novel, and exploring kind of what that looks like on an individual and a national level. So with that brief summary, Kelly, do you have any like burning thoughts after reading this? Well, you know, I am a big fan of memoirs, typically of celebrity memoirs, so it was really grounding and intriguing to read about this very real person, not that celebrities aren't real people, but to read about these broader issues, as you mentioned, especially the intersection between racism and sexism that Tony talks about fluidly throughout the book. As an African-American woman, I'm definitely very much in touch with how those intersections play out in American society, and especially here in Iowa where the author was raised during her childhood. So reading about some of those first introductions into like the patriarchal systems that support not only racism and sexism, but gun violence and traumatic domestic abuse, like all of those systems just kind of interplay together. So I think Tony did a fantastic job of weaving those stories together. Yeah, absolutely, I 100% agree. And weaving them together in a like tangible, like you said, down to earth kind of connected way. It didn't feel too kind of out of reach, like up in the clouds almost is what I want to say. Like because it was interplayed with a lot of her personal experience, I definitely got that feeling as well. There was a specific story that she told that brings exactly what you were talking about. In chapter two, she talks about her mom and motherhood and girlhood and she's talking about how she always thought as a girl that she never wanted to be a mother because Mm. nobody takes care of mothers and also i think one quote that she talks about that kind of talks a bit to the sexualization of young girls tell the girl this body is not only a too early body but a too far body you know when young girls are i think this was covering like her tween years like the 10, 11, 12 years. My daughter's 10 and I've been a 10 year old before. And being a girl who developed quote unquote too early, I really aligned with some of the things that she was saying. And not only was that language coming from the men in her family, but also from the women in her family. And it really talks a lot about how, and I think this was in the chapter about trafficking. I think it was called How to Traffic a Girl or How a Girl is Trafficked. In that chapter specifically, it really just shows this timeline of how that subculture begins and how it begins very much in a home. It's not this boogeyman in the bushes stealing young girls. It really starts with that integral language that girls are told about their bodies at a very young age that feeds into that kind of that subculture. And along with that 
even like I don't want to say deeper into but in that chapter that she's talking about the trafficking of young girls I think that's the same chapter that she talks about early childhood trauma Mm -hmm. and exposure to violence at an early age and it being one of those four factors for gun violence and specifically for like mass shootings and things yes and so she identifies these four factors that are kind of outlined in a lot of the research she's doing towards the ends of the book and the way she connects domestic violence oh, yeah. and broader violence outside the home. Exactly. Even from her own experience, when she shares the story of her father attempting to drown her mother in the bathtub at home when she was a young girl, witnessing something so visceral like that, witnessing domestic abuse so young at that level of a parent trying to murder another parent absolutely feeds into the thoughts about gun violence and also that of you know her father who was an NRA member very much pro-gun taught her how to shoot that embedded gun culture that exists very much specifically in the Midwest and she grew up in rural Iowa and then for her to move to Minneapolis which I think we'll move into later in the conversation but her moving to St. Paul Minneapolis and then thinking in 2000 when she moved there that it was this very friendly place and it was you know very liberal and open but not knowing that two decades later George Floyd's murder would occur right in those same streets and her making that connection in her book between those two incidences between moving there and then George Floyd happening is really retrospective into how much violence and that enforcement plays out in today's society and she did such a good job of pulling in like cultural and historical markers like that throughout mm-hmm. the book oh I yeah like and she went into some things that i'd never really thought about before but of course as i'm reading this I'm like yes of course that plays a role like the fairness doctrine she yeah with the fcc repealing the fairness doctrine so that balanced views on the radio don't actually have to occur anymore that once that was repealed you know, you see shows like Rush Limbaugh. You know, shock jocks. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that she talked about other significant things like the Tulsa massacre. She talked about the Pulse shootings in Orlando. And that's what I really liked about this memoir is that in so many memoirs, it seems like the references are so dated and that it's speaking to a specific generation. And I think that's kind of the culture of memoirs is that they are to speak to a specific generation. What I really loved about Tony's memoir is that it is multi-generational. It shows how these ideas of gun violence and domestic abuse and racism and sexism, how it goes generation through generation and really making that connection throughout the book. I really appreciated the cultural relevance of the examples that she pointed out to. The way it's developed over the connection between that she kept bringing back to all the essays. It all fed into one another. Sometimes I feel like collection essays don't always do that well, but you see a lot of repeating, not even just themes, but like she brings birds into a lot of the essays and that kind of ties it back to the land. And she says in her description of what it means to be Meti, 
mm-hmm. how it's tied to land and people. It was just something I also really appreciated. Yep. And you mentioned the Metis part. We want to remind the audience that Metis means that this is an individual who is mixed with both European and Native American descents, which the author is. And getting back to like the structure of the book, as you mentioned, I love the prose narrative. It's something that several authors have done. Elizabeth Estevito, who wrote The Poet X, a young adult novel, is all completely prose. Just introducing the idea of kind of a poetic narrative to topics that are just so jarring. The contradiction between the prose narrative style that Tony Jensen is using in this book really just is so contradictory to the serious tone of the topics she's talking about. And I think that's part of what makes it so engaging is that you're in this poetic field where it's, you know, there's the repetitive words, as you said, the repetitive phrases. But what she's talking about is this real painful trauma that she's really unpacking for the reader. Like you said, it's done in a way that the lyrical pieces of it somehow give it, like you said, the juxtaposition, but also it makes it easier maybe for our brain to work through poetry in some Mm -hmm. ways, I think. I think emotions get felt more deeply when you're reading poetry and prose. And I think that that was Tony's goal for the reader is to, you know, this isn't another word by word historical retelling of one person's life mired by racism and sexism, using prose as a vehicle to discuss these issues not only makes it engaging, but it really helps you really deeply feel those emotions, even if it's something that you haven't been through. So I think that's what I really appreciated about it was that the prose narrative really brought the emotions to the forefront. And interspersed with like all of this really good data and information about Mm -hmm. what's happening in our culture just made it so hearty. I'm acting like I'm eating it, but like... (laughs) I mean, it was very consumable because like you said, it had these emotions and these raw stories, but then she would kind of hit you with some statistics and some data that you would expect from a typical nonfiction book, Mm -hmm. you know, not so much in a memoir. So she really melded those two kind of subgenres of nonfiction together. She gave you U.S. history and she gave you memoir in one pack. And she used prose as a vehicle to kind of tie it together so that it could be deeply felt. And specifically, I'm thinking of a couple of statistics that she dropped on me that were related to domestic violence and abuse and pet abuse, which she talks about how almost 90% of women who were in situations where there was domestic violence in the home their pets had also been abused. And then she brought in the fact that, you know, how now a lot of times when animal control gets reports of pet abuse or animal abuse, Mm -hmm. they then can work with police officers to follow up with that family. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's... Yeah. That's amazing to build that into Mm -hmm. your community. If you're a victim of domestic abuse and you may not feel empowered to tell someone of authority, you may be more empowered to tell animal control that your pet is being abused as kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, a dog whistle to say, hey, there's something toxic happening in this home. And so I think that is fantastic. It's a great way to really combat 
two issues at once. And then, you know, having then supports built into those institutions or organizations that help people get out of domestic violence situations when they're ready and able that also support, you know, making sure their pets can be taken out of that situation is Mm -hmm. amazing. Also, the way that she brings not just like her personal life experience, but like the life experience of some of her family members into this. Mm -hmm. Because she mentions a part where her sister seemed a little upset that she would be talking about a specific incident that happened with her sister's son. And I was just curious what your thoughts, because I know you're a writer. Mm -hmm. I was curious about your thoughts about how that works as both a writer and a reader for you, like bringing in other people's stories that are not wholly. Yeah, it can be tricky. I mainly write fiction, but one of my writing goals is to write a series of memoirs at some point. And I always think to myself, and I've attended many writing conferences, and one in particular talked about creative nonfiction. How do you do a fictional retelling of a real person or of a real situation without making everyone upset. And I think there's a level of bravery as a writer, and I think Tony Jensen has definitely reached this, where you have to call a thing a thing. Mm-hmm. And for her courage to tell these stories, I think what you have to do is also make yourself understand that you're not trying to call out this family member or this family situation. What you're trying to do is unpack that so that the reader can possibly learn something from there, so that the reader can glean something from that experience. So I think that, I mean, you can't control the subject. The person is going to be upset, they're going to be upset. But as the writer, I think it's your responsibility to take ego out of that story and make sure that you're writing it not to make a family member upset or to call a family member on the carpet, but to tell a greater story that you wish to share with the reader in order to inspire them to tell their stories or to even unpack their own stories. I think it's always very therapeutic when someone writes a memoir, especially a memoir of this tone. And there have been so many of them by Tara Westover is another example. And this kind of gave me educated vibes because she was telling these painful traumatic stories about people in her immediate family and you have to wonder how do people feel about that I have the same questions as you I remember after I read An Educated by Tara Westover I felt that I had to google her and I watched her on Oprah because I was curious to know how her family felt after writing that it can be powerful to tell those painful stories but I think ultimately as the writer you have to do it from a place of not ego you know, take the ego out and do it from a place of just understanding for yourself and hoping that the writer understands as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think she did it very well. I didn't feel that ego like you were just saying. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that in what I was reading. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that was also, it seems like her general attitude towards life and towards her family, like she was still very loving and connected to like her sister Her relationship with her father was obviously more complicated for readers who may not have gotten there yet. Her father was physically abusive, not only to her mother, but to her. Mm -hmm. And so she talks about 
the balance of having a current relationship with her father, which she does, but also setting boundaries for herself and making sure that she holds those boundaries, even if it's painful, even if in some moments may want to kind of extend herself more. And I think part of her telling her stories about her father were an examination of those boundaries and allowing herself and giving herself permission to speak truth to that relationship. I think that's very boundary adjacent because she needed to tell those stories to show where she came from. Her father was a very integral part of her life, for better or worse. He was a very integral part of her development. So it was necessary for her to tell those stories, but to also follow up and say, this is my boundary with my father, and this is why the boundary with my father exists. So I think it's two parts. It's establishing that boundary, but also using the stories to highlight why the boundary exists in the first place. And as somebody who's always trying to set boundaries and sometimes failing, oh yeah, I can, <laughs> I can really appreciate having that shown in a way that is really tangible and very deep and heartfelt. I think in order to write a memoir of this magnitude, boundaries not only with her father, but with her sister, her nephews, all of her family members, that was required for yeah. sure. She's somebody I would love to meet and yeah. like get a real feeling for, but like she just seems like such a strong, self-actualized person. I know that's probably not fair to put on her. and badass and she was one of those people who was you know talks about herself kind of as a troublemaker Um, Mm -hmm. and I always love hearing stories about troublemakers oh yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh yeah same same (laughs) and then it wasn't just about obviously when we say troublemaker we don't just mean breaking rules or anything like that but about taking risks in life I think being a troublemaker in your own personal life I mean we know about historical troublemakers who make you know political impacts but I think that personal troublemaking is so essential to what you just mentioned with self-actualization really unpacking and I think the first step to that is really facing yourself facing your trauma, unpacking that. And I imagine that for her to have written this memoir, and again, a memoir of this magnitude, it does not come lightly. I think that that involved a lot of pre-work on her own to really break down, first of all, the fear and the ego that may come from, you know, as a byproduct of being exposed to trauma at an early age. There's a lot there. So getting through those layers and then being able to tell a story like this in the way that she did without ego, without fear, and really just telling the story for what it was, that's some good trouble. As the late, great John Lewis says, that was good trouble. Did you have a favorite essay or chapter in this book? I liked what she said a lot about her family's assimilation, especially the early years. So in the earlier chapters when she was talking about growing up in rural Iowa, one quote that she said that really stuck with me was, they are all striving to be better at whiteness, at prosperity. They are all failing. Some of the pain that her family had to go through to assimilate the story of, I think it was her nephew who went to the lake house and was mistaken for being African-American and you know the hard lesson to be learned there. I think that for a lot of folks of color, that innateness to assimilate, to participate in whiteness, and the concept of whiteness can be overpowering. 
And I think one example she mentioned was her father's day drinking, how that was kind of his way of assimilating himself to his fellow workers as someone who was, you know, just as worthy of acknowledgement as them. But it came at the cost of alcoholism and addiction and abuse and to making that tie between the need to assimilate and the trauma that went on in her family that was a very interesting insight that I took away from that section of the book on top of that we get the layer of maybe and I don't know if this was intentional or if I'm reading into it because she talks about dance Mm -hmm. in there too because that's directly also connected to her father and so she would go to dance class and the dance studio was apparently right next door to a bar and she would go from Mm -hmm. dance class afterwards to essentially pick her dad up from the bar yeah and I was wondering if like the dance piece if that was a part of her story in assimilation or if that wasn't if that was unrelated i think that more the point of that story was that was the beginning of her becoming the caretaker of her parents but i can imagine that learning dance in the midwest she was probably one of the only brown faces there and there's that innate assimilation quality that comes out and it starts very young so i wouldn't be surprised if that was an issue for her as well i mean you mirror what you see at home and when you have a parent actively participating in the assimilation of whiteness then you as a child are more likely to follow suit so I definitely see that there because she may have been the only student that would go to the bar after class to Mm -hmm. pick up her father who was battling alcoholism well and she was probably learning I don't think they say exactly what type of dancing she was learning, but we can assume it probably if she was the only person of color in the room, she probably wasn't learning dances that were traditional to her Meti heritage. Right. So that's maybe, yeah, part of that ingrained or that Mm -hmm. kind of socialized whiteness. But yeah, and she does throughout the book mention how much she wished she had had more time with her grandmother, Mm. who was Meti, and she felt like that was kind of her connection, and that's where she learned a lot about her heritage. Yeah, because I don't think that she had, at least from her immediate family, especially her father, I don't think that she had that example. She had an example from a different generation, her grandmother's generation was much more solidly connected to Native life and more solidly connected to that old world. Whereas her father, this was the generation that was leaving behind the old world, leaving behind those Native traditions in order to assimilate into whiteness. And they were doing that for survival. You know, a lot of assimilation, especially from that generation, a lot of the assimilation that was happening in the 70s and 80s, even into the 90s, for a lot of people of color, was a means for survival. I mean, and you still see it now. I know there's a such thing as a code switching, which is when people of color use more King's English language when they are in professional settings. And that is a form of assimilation. You know, it's not nearly as traumatic as other forms, such as day drinking, <laughs> as her father participated in. But, you know, I think it's always going to be that innateness, that innateness to assimilate among people of color in predominantly white settings, for sure. And there were other examples throughout her childhood. She talks about the kind of conflict between her parents about some aspects of 
that culture that her dad actually still maybe participated in, like when he would go and shoot food for consumption, like he would go out and Mm -hmm. hunt rabbit. Or she talked about having pelts at home that were taken off of the Mm -hmm. animals that he killed for food and how they'd be hanging outside. And her mother found such shame in some of these things. Mm -hmm. And that story and those kinds of stories. And she wasn't thinking about it as a cultural connection, but more as a socioeconomic kind of flag stating that, hey, we're poor. And that comes a lot from that assimilation again, is that we don't see our white neighbors shooting for their food. They go to the grocery store and purchase their food. But to do so would be ignoring a part of our native culture. So where does the balance lie? And I think that that's what a lot of people, especially first generations, struggle with, is how do I hold on to my culture but then get accepted so that I can survive in my current situation. It's really about preserving the past and surviving the current. And sometimes those two can bump heads against each other. I mean, there's just so much to unpack in this. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where to go next. It is definitely a deep, deep read. I think anyone who's truly interested in looking at the intersections between racism and sexism and immigration should definitely read this book. It is definitely very serious topics are covered in it, but it's told in such an engaging light. There are several times where I had to stop and pause and just reflect on myself and reflect on my thoughts and ideas about assimilation Mm -hmm. and about immigration and especially to reflect on being a person of color in the Midwest. Some things that, you know, I'm originally from Chicago, so I come from a predominantly black neighborhood, but having lived in a predominantly white state for over two decades, you know, I had to think about ways in which I've assimilated. It's really such a thought-provoking read. It's engaging, yes, but it really makes you stop and think about those experiences that she details throughout the book. Absolutely. Yes, I know that there were several times where even just pausing to go back and listen to something she said, because I was like, okay, I'm not sure I got all that. But also, Mm -hmm. yeah, just to pause and stop and collect myself after some of the stories and some of the facts she brings to the table. And Mm -hmm. it's like, it's hard hitting in some of the best ways. I did the audiobook as well. And her voice is so soothing you almost forget she's talking about some hardcore stuff. So I noticed that from the audiobook for sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> we'll go ahead and leave it there because yeah. what better way to drive folks to pick up the book themselves if they have not yet. So I will just go ahead and let folks know if you are looking for something similar to this, I do have one recommended read, an anthology also, but it is called Black Futures. Is edited by Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham. And it is a collection not just of essays, but of memes and kind of other types of media as well. And mm-hmm. I highly recommend for anybody looking for something similar. We'll be back in July with Candace from Iowa City Public Library to discuss Seven Years of Darkness by Yu Jong Jong. And we hope you'll join us again. Thanks so much for joining me, Kelly. Thanks. <laughs>